If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In recent years, Turkey and Russia have found themselves on the opposite sides of conflicts, notably in Syria. Still, they've had a generally stable relationship. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, however, may change that. And when the last speaker of a language dies, an entire culture and way of seeing the world dies with her. Our obituaries editor reflects on the last person who could remember bark canoes setting off across South America's Beagle Channel. But first... Leaders around the world have condemned an attack on a Ukrainian nuclear power plant. The Zaporizhia plant, the largest in Europe, is now under Russian control after it came under heavy shelling. Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson said that it had threatened the safety of the entire continent. It is the latest reckless act in a reckless war, one that has produced a growing humanitarian disaster. I have worked in refugee emergencies for almost 40 years, and rarely have I seen an exodus as rapid as this one. Yesterday, Filippo Grandi, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, said more than a million people have left Ukraine since the war began. Hour by hour, minute by minute, more people are fleeing the terrifying reality of violence. And unless there is an immediate end to the conflict, millions more are likely to be forced to flee Ukraine. It was very hard. A lot of people, of women, of kids, of old people, of um, people who need special care. And it was very hard, very long trip, but... uh... One of them was Olga Nietzsche, who arrived yesterday at the train station in the Polish border town of Przemysl from her home in Kiev. Who is here now? We feeling safe, like uh, in the first town of Poland. We're feeling very safe already. It's just uh, very scary to live in this shit. <laughs> she said the last few days have been harrowing. And last, I guess, six days, we just like uh, don't sleep at nights at all. We we laying like uh, in bed and praying that uh, these bombs flying near our house, but not in our house. And very scary to knowing that every moment you can die. Just it, it, it's horrible. It's all I, uh, that I can say. She left almost everything she had behind, carrying very few items on her way to her mother's home in Germany. A sport costume, warm, um, sleeping bag, um, a little bit of uh, gigi and stuff, like uh, soap, and maybe a few socks. (laughs) 
others drive, arriving by car at nearby Medica. We uh, arrived from Kiev three days. Uh, Some, like Anastasia, walked four hours to arrive on foot. Uh, it is uh, totally collapsed on borders. Uh, children and women just stay uh, and uh, wait on help, but uh, help don't came to Ukraine. Another, Katya, says she collapsed when she crossed the border. I cannot feel my feet to get here, like when I just got out of uh, border control on the front side. I just had to sit down. Because she has a simple message. Fuck Russia. Which she then corrects. Fuck Putin, not Russia. This is a refugee crisis on a scale that Europe had hoped never to see again. Chris Lockwood is The Economist's Europe editor. It was back in 2014, 15, 16 that, thanks to the war in Syria, more than a million people appeared in Europe from the Middle East. And it was an enormous crisis. But everyone thought that perhaps nothing like this would happen again for quite a while. Here we are with a million people in just one week. It's quite extraordinary. And give us a sense of where those people are going. So the million people that have already crossed and the two or three or four million more that are expected to cross in the next few weeks are going westwards in almost every case to all the countries that have a border with Ukraine, predominantly to Poland, which has the longest border, about 500 kilometers there, which has taken more than half of them, about 600,000, I believe, also into Romania, into Moldova, and some into Hungary, and Slovakia as well, all in smaller numbers. Poland is clearly where the biggest burden lies, but also where you know the greatest efforts are being made. Now, you said at the outset, this is a crisis that Europe hoped never to see again, you know, but here we are. How have people and how have countries responded? Well, the response has been really quite breathtaking. The EU had pretty much closed up its borders, created a sort of fortress Europe to deter any further migration, principally from the Middle East, but also, of course, coming from Libya. There were a lot of people coming from from Africa too. And this had become, in European eyes, an intolerable burden and great efforts were made to shut the flow off via patrolling the Mediterranean for boats and via a deal with Turkey, which is where most people from the Middle East arrived into Europe. And that effort to close the border has been completely reversed. It's essentially an open border all the way across that western border of Ukraine. Everyone that arrives is being allowed in, often with a bit of a delay because the border post can can only handle about 200,000 people a day. So that's the number of people that are arriving into Europe, into the EU, there are more than that arriving at the border in Western Ukraine, but they are being forced to remain there for a while as the processing takes place. And you mentioned the legal changes. What about individual responses? How have the people of the countries that they're going into responded? Well, the people in each of the countries on the border have responded, I would have to say, absolutely magnificently. People are turning up at the border to collect the refugees and and take them off, disperse them into other towns and, and cities and villages. And they are not staying very long at the border once they arrive in, in Poland or Hungary. They're, they're moving quite quickly into accommodation deeper into the country. And no doubt after that, they will move beyond the original countries into other ones, you know, to, to Germany or France or, or Spain or wherever. Now, this sort of migration triggered political crises in the, in the earlier part of the last decade. How have things been different? 
Well, the first wave of migration that we're talking about, the 2014-15 migration, had a tremendous backlash, it's fair to say. Populists seized on it, uh, both in Italy, in France, in Spain, in Germany. There was the feeling that these were people coming from quite far away, that it was not a problem in any sense of Europe's making, and that the numbers arriving were just too enormous to cope with. Well, of course, now we're seeing much larger numbers and and people are coping. You have to wonder whether in the future some sort of backlash will arrive, because in the early days of of the original crisis, uh, there wasn't really a backlash, it only came later. But this has a very different feeling for many ways, I would say, partly because the people that are arriving are mostly women and children. There are much closer cultural ties between, say, Ukraine and Poland. There are a lot of Ukrainians already in Poland. Poland has a terrible labour shortage because so many Poles have have moved away thanks to EU border-free travel to work in Germany and, and, and beyond. So, so they desperately have needed Ukrainians for a long time. I've been trying to lure them over. So in one sense, they're very literally pushing at an open door. So we've seen a huge display of individual generosity on the border. What about policy from the EU or the US? How has that looked so far? Well, this is very interesting. The EU has activated a policy that it's long had on the books but never actually used in the past, which has extended to Ukrainians the ability to stay within the EU for three years and have access essentially to full rights. So that includes benefits and probably most crucially of all, the right to work, which is very important for their dignity and also, of course, for the way that they can integrate into the societies that they're living in. And the US has done something similar. So it's quite a different situation again to what we saw in the past with people coming from the Middle East where very often they weren't able to work and got only really quite minimal benefits. So this is a very generous response. And, you know, one that will be quite costly for the EU to provide if we're talking about four or five million. So where do you see the breaking points to this this generosity? Will Poles and Germans really be happy to have hundreds of thousands of refugees living in their countries forever? Well, I don't think it will be forever because I'm sure this war will come to an end and people will go back. It's only a short distance to go back. At least I hope this will happen. And I think that integration will be somewhat easy given that, you know, so many of the Ukrainians that are coming across speak very good English, which is now sort of default language across so much of Europe and and, then they will find it easy to get work. So I'm hopeful that we won't see the kind of backlash that we saw after the last wave of migration. Previously, the burden fell very, very heavily on a couple of countries, on on Italy and on Greece. They felt that they weren't being supported by the EU. Well, this is a bit different. The EU is giving more support and people are moving across a rather wider range of countries. So perhaps that will will make it easier as well. So, So I'm hopeful that we won't see what we saw last time, which was a big rise in the populist nationalist Right. And and actually, a lot of those people, unfortunately for them, are rather sort of closely associated with Mr. Putin. So I expect them to be keeping their mouths shut for a while, frankly. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, 
has forged a generally solid working relationship with Russia's president, Vladimir Putin. But the war in Ukraine has strained those relations. On Sunday, President Erdogan invoked an international accord to limit the passage of Russian warships through the Bosporus Strait. The Bosporus connects the Mediterranean to the Black Sea, which also borders Ukraine. Since February, at least six Russian amphibious assault ships and a Kilo-class submarine have passed through the strait. Turkey has also sold Ukraine drones that have been used to attack Russian convoys. And the country now finds itself in an exceptionally delicate position. Turkey is walking a tightrope because it is a member of the NATO alliance. Pyotr Zalewski is the Economist Turkey correspondent. But at the same time, it's also friendly with Russia and with Ukraine, which it calls a strategic partner. And it shares a maritime border with both of those countries. And so how has Turkey responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Turkey has called Russia's invasion of Ukraine a war. It has shifted its stance from earlier on when it said Russia's action was unacceptable, but stopped short of calling it war. And so now, according to the Montreux Convention, which governs the passage of military and civilian vessels through the Dardanelles and Bosphorus Straits, Turkey can restrict passage to all Russian warships, except those that are returning to their registered base in the Black Sea. And it has announced that it is effectively doing so. And how is that decision impacting Turkey's relationship with Russia? This has placed the relationship between Russia and Turkey and between Mr. Erdogan and Mr. Putin under strain. And one of the reasons it has not yet snapped uh, is that Mr. Erdogan continues to shy from confrontation. Um, although his government had previously sold Ukraine armed drones, which are now being used by the Ukrainians against advancing Russian tanks, it has not supplied the country with weapons since the start of the war. Um, and unlike America and Europe, Turkey has not announced any specific sanctions against Russia or closed its airspace to Russian planes. This is, in fact, par for the course. Turkey did not sign up to Western sanctions against Moscow when Russia annexed Crimea in 2014, although it has also condemned that move. And so why has Mr. Erdogan been so reluctant to, to confront Russia? Well, Turkey has more reason than many European countries to fear Russian retaliation. Uh, Russia has a history of cutting off gas to insubordinate neighbors. In Turkey's case, it occasionally cuts off tourists. It did so in 2016 after Turkey shot down a Russian warplane near Syria. Uh, this triggered an apology from Mr. Erdogan and a rapprochement between Turkey and Russia. Turkey's economy, which has been struggling of late, depends on tourism for a large share of its hard currency revenue. And currency revenue depends largely on Russian tourists. Turkey, incidentally, also depends on Russia for 40% of its gas. And so what about Turkey's relations with, with Ukraine, which you say it also counts as a, as a strategic ally? Well, Turkish diplomats will tell you that Turkey counts Russia as a partner and Ukraine as a strategic partner. And so the relationship is supposedly warmer and more resilient when it comes to Ukraine. And Turkey has, in fact, opposed Russia's annexation of Crimea. Uh, it has backed Ukraine's plans to join NATO. And it has shared Ukraine's concerns about 
Russian naval buildup in the Black Sea. And earlier this year, Mr. Erdogan and Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine's president, uh, signed a new defense cooperation agreement. So how are all of these conflicting alliances actually playing out in the war? Well, this makes for a very complicated picture. Erdogan has said that Turkey will do whatever is necessary as a NATO member if Ukraine was invaded by Russia. It has been invaded by Russia. And since the invasion, uh, Mr. Erdogan has criticized NATO, uh, saying it should be more determined in its actions rather than offering advice and condemnation. But no European leader, save perhaps for Viktor Orban of Hungary, has treaded as carefully as Mr. Erdogan when it comes to Russia and Ukraine. On February 28th, Mr. Erdogan said Turkey would not turn its back on either Moscow or Kiev, although he once again called Russia's attack unacceptable. And days earlier, when the Council of Europe voted to suspend Russia, Turkey abstained. Now, Mr. Erdogan would have loved to preserve cozy ties with Russia, but the war in Ukraine is testing that relationship possibly to destruction. And Russia may, as a result, put the squeeze on Mr. Erdogan. Uh, so how would he do that? Would he, would he restrict the flow of gas or restrict the flow of tourists? Russia has other ways of tempering Turkey's support for Ukraine. The Idlib province in northeast Syria, right on the border with Turkey, is packed with over three million civilians and controlled by Islamic extremists. Uh, two years ago, Turkey, which backs the insurgents, and Russia, which backs the Syrian regime, agreed to a ceasefire. And that stopped the regime offensive that would have pushed the insurgents and millions of refugees toward Turkey's border. But since the start of the crisis in Ukraine, Turkish officials say, ceasefire violations have picked up. The Russians see Idlib as a soft spot for Turkey, and Turkish officials believe that by bombing um, Idlib, they're sending a message uh, that if Turkey were to do something Russia did not like in Ukraine, then Russia could make things very difficult uh, for Turkey on its border with Syria. So how do you see things playing out? The longer Ukraine resists, the more people die and the more robust the Western response, the more Mr. Erdogan might feel emboldened to side with the West and take a tougher stance on Russia. But if the West folds and Russia takes Ukraine, Turkey will be alarmed, but it will probably have no choice but to continue to avoid a confrontation with the Russians. Piotr, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. The southernmost tip of South America is perhaps one of the most inhospitable places in the world to live. It's full of storms. The land is very barren and it's freezing because you're almost at Antarctica. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. And yet for centuries, a tribe did live there called the Yagan. And I say did live there because Christina Calderon was the very last pure-blooded member of the Yagan people 
so there are no pure-blooded Yaguns left now. Christina was the only one who could remember living the Yagan life, which was extraordinary, which meant spending half the year, the summer, out on the sea, and then the other half, the winter, in little shacks on shore. In the boats, they went practically naked, even though it was still extremely cold. But it was the only life she knew, and it was full of the most interesting legends, myths, and so on. Christina was the only person left who could directly remember being told not to look at an ice flow when it passed you, because it was actually a spirit, it was a being, and it was wise. You were either told not to look at it, or you had to paint your face black to avoid it. She remembered being told that a giant ape man lived in the woods, and also that God had meant seagull chicks to be killed for food. And that was why, when she felt sorry that she had to stone seagull chicks when she was little, she was told she should not be sorry because they were there for a purpose, and that was to feed her people. She had a very hard early existence. She was born in one of the traditional shacks on shore and born to parents who had already changed their Yagan names for Spanish ones because the tribe was very much looked down on by white settlers and people laughed at them. They couldn't get jobs and they were generally thought of as second-rate people. So they tried as they could to blend in with the Spanish-speaking majority. She herself had been forced to marry at 15 because although men and women were supposed to be equal, in fact, if you didn't marry, you were left as a woman without food or clothes or stability. It was thought no future at all for a woman. She protested about it, but in the end, she accepted that it was probably true. Hey, once the children had gone and she was a little freer, and indeed when she was getting quite old, she began to compile a dictionary from Yagan to Spanish. And generally tried to set up with her granddaughter later on language workshops and classes so that it was available to learn if anyone wanted to. The take-up was not tremendous because... Children were not interested in learning this language. If no one spoke it, why should they learn it? And it was extremely complicated looking. Nonetheless, she did persevere and she also put out a book of the myths and legends of the people. They were very much oppressed as a people and she was affected too by that because the Chilean government was trying continuously to press the Yagan into a smaller and smaller space and take away the land that they'd been living on. So gradually they found themselves just at the outskirts of a little place called Villa Yukika where she lived most of her life. But gradually the Chilean government realized that it had something rather precious in Christina, 
that she was the last living relic with a very deep past. So eventually she became known as a national treasure. There were rather moving pictures taken at the end of her sitting in the very fine white wooden house she was given by the Chilean government. And gazing out of the window at the waters of the Beagle Channel, a place where she could still remember the tree bark canoes setting out, which she was the last to be able to describe in a language which had now gone forever. Anne Rowe on Christina Calderon, who has died age 93. I'm Christina Calderon. I'm here with you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of what you've heard. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. The show's editors this week are Kim Gittleson, Marguerite Howell, and Chris Impey. Our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are John Joe Devlin, Stevie Hertz, Jack Gill, and Sam Westron. Our producers are William Warren, Rory Galloway, and Alizé Jean-Baptiste. And assistant producer, Abasoy Osendairo. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.